Amen. You may be seated. Wow, what a powerful time of worship that was. Our sins, they are many, but his grace, his mercy is more. Church, you should say amen to that because there's nothing else to be said. I uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning. We're continuing our way through Acts, Acts chapter 14. We're looking at verses 8 to 18 this morning. I appreciate uh, Jeanette reading that to us this uh, few minutes ago. I just want to draw your attention to one, one verse in particular, particularly where Paul begins to respond to the crowds. They worship Paul and Barnabas um, in response to the miracle that is performed rather than worshiping the Lord. And, and Paul and Barnabas, Paul specifically, he, uh, he tries to restrain them. It says in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way, yet he didn't leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And verse 18, very important verse to understanding the passage. Even with these words, and this is one of the most important words in the paragraph, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's bow and ask the Lord to bless us this morning as we listen to his word. Father in heaven, once again, we just come before you and we pray, O Lord, that as we look at this text, as we look at uh, the efforts that Paul and Barnabas are making in terms of preaching the gospel and sharing with these folks here at uh, Lystra, Lord, we, we pray that we would see the difficulty that they encountered, that we would understand the miracle that you granted to be done, and that we would have a better understanding of the nature of salvation and the priority and the, of the preaching of the gospel, Lord. Help us to see that and then to apply that here at First Baptist Church. Father, the other thing that I would ask of you this morning, by your spirit, would you help this church to know, to understand, and to believe that they are a miracle, but that that miracle does not take priority over our preaching of the gospel. I pray you'd show that to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Since magicians began performing for crowds, some tricks have really stood out. In recent memory, I'm thinking of Harry Houdini's famous escape from a straitjacket. He wore a straitjacket with chains and locks and the whole bit, and he managed to wiggle his way out of that thing. I'm also thinking of David Blaine, holding his breath for underwater for 17 minutes, or at least that's what he has purported to have done. But perhaps the one that I enjoy the most, and I watched this live on TV when I was just a little guy, David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear. Anybody here recall watching that on TV about 40 years ago? Wow, I can't can't believe I'm that old already. But anyway, and the, some of you are afraid to raise your hands. I understand. You remember it, though. You remember it. You remember it. 
I mean, uh, it was one of the most spectacular things. Uh, it was done live on TV in 1985 in front of millions of people watching from home. I was just five years old at the time. Um, there were about 36, 40 people watching it live in person there, about uh, 200 feet from the Statue of Liberty. And uh, those who were gathered there could not tell how it was that David Copperfield somehow managed to make a statue that was 310 feet tall and weighing approximately 225,000 pounds made of copper, how it was that he managed to make it disappear. I mean, how did he do it? The sheet went up. There was a giant light being shined from behind the statue. You could see the silhouette of the, sh- of the statue on the sheet that was raised on this giant tower. Two towers erected on either side just in front of the statue. The sheet went up. The statue is there. You can see its shadow. He kneels down. You begin to watch. There's a little radar that he's uh, kneeling next to, and, and there's allegedly a radar pumping you know, energy through the sheet so you can see the, the statue there on the radar. And then you know, he does his magic abracadabra routine, and, and the blip goes off the radar, and then he stands up, and he motions with his hands, a little bit more abracadabra magic. The sheet drops. And the statue is gone. And uh, those who were gathered there, they were filled with wonder. They said, you know, I wouldn't have believed it if I wasn't here to see it in person, live, with my own eyes. When they asked, do you think he really made it disappear? Not a one of them said yes. They knew the statue was there somewhere. They knew it was there, but knowing it was there did not rob them of their wonder at his trickery. We can tell just by looking at events like that, that it is possible to see the supernatural, to appreciate it for what it is, and to even wonder at it. But just because we wonder at the spectacular does not mean that that wonder comes from a heart of faith. Oftentimes, the question is presented. We're sharing with our friends about Jesus. Listen, there's a man who has conquered the grave. He has reversed the curse. He has turned back death. Say, I'd like to really believe that, but if it's true what you say, why doesn't God just work a miracle? Why doesn't he just perform like a magician and show us something spectacular? And oftentimes, I know you've been there, I've been there myself, we can be sometimes stumped, maybe perplexed at that response that unbelieving friends have when we are trying to share with them the gospel. It's a good question. Why doesn't God just right now in this moment work a miracle and show himself real to the world? And what we discover looking here in the book of Acts is that miracles can be sometimes more confusing than they are clarifying. Understand that, church. Miracles can be more confusing than they are clarifying. As we walk through this passage, what I want you to see, above anything else, is that salvation comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ over and above and against any other miracle. Look with me. We begin in verse 8. 
They have made their way, Paul and Barnabas, to Lystra. It says, now at Lystra there was a man sitting there who couldn't use his feet. He'd been this way his whole life, crippled, it says, from birth. He had never walked. This is a man who has a permanent disability. Undoubtedly, his family has scraped together money. They've brought doctors, physicians. They've done the best that they can do for him. And yet, despite all of their ministrations, all of their helps, all of their mercies and medicines, they have not been able, despite all of that, to manage to help this guy to walk. Along come Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel. It says in verse 9, this man is listening to Paul speaking. He's listening intently. And Paul looks at this man, and it says, Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said to him, he said to him, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. A miracle is done. Now, you notice the text. It says that Paul looks at him and he says that he, had, he saw that he had faith to be made well. And of course, having that faith, Paul is able to grant a miracle of healing done by God, but performed at the direction of the apostle. It is God who has done the healing. The apostle Paul has directed that it should happen, but ultimately is God who grants that it should happen. And this is perfectly consistent with a biblical world of view, a biblical worldview of our planet, disease, sickness, dying. Why is it that we are dying? Why is it that we experience disease and sickness? It is because of the curse. It is because of sin. It is because we have rebelled against God. And so when God works a miracle in order to take away our sickness or our physical disability, our infirmities, it is because he can do that having dealt with our sin. We saw this fulfilled in the life of Christ. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. It's wonderful. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. He goes on from there. He goes all throughout Galilee, it says, performing miracles. There's even this account of him coming to Peter's mother-in-law. She's afflicted. He heals her. And Matthew makes the comment. He makes the comment there in Matthew chapter 8. It says, they brought to him after Peter's mother-in-law. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And Matthew makes this parenthetical comment. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He has taken our illnesses, and he has borne our diseases. Of course, that's from Isaiah 53. That is also the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of Isaiah 53 that Matthew is quoting. If you go back to Isaiah 53 and you read it according to the Hebrew text, this is what it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah uses the words griefs and sorrows, but Matthew quotes from the Septuagint, which says our sicknesses, our diseases, Uh, our infirmities. He's taken those things. How is it that Christ is able to heal and to take away disease and sickness? Well, Isaiah tells you the answer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are 
healed. The theology of Isaiah 53 is that sin and sickness go together. That we experience sickness because we live in a world marred by sin. And Jesus is able to take away our disease because he first takes away our sin. Paul is preaching the gospel at Lystra. This man is listening. And Paul looks at him and he sa- it says that he saw that he had faith to be made well. This guy is hearing the word of Christ and he is hoping in it. And so Paul performs a miracle that is completely consistent with the gospel. This is God's testimony This is his way of stepping into the natural realm and showing that the supernatural is bearing witness and testifying to the legitimacy of the message that Paul is preaching. God is saying to the people at Lystra, listen to these boys. They're telling you the truth. Now, what is the crowd's response? Woohoo! They worked a miracle. Great. Let's listen to the gospel, let's all believe in Jesus. Is that what you're thinking they would do? That's what I'm thinking they would do. And to be perfectly honest, that's kind of what I'm hoping will happen from time to time when I'm out doing street evangelism. Wouldn't it be great right now as I'm sharing my faith with this guy on the street or as I'm sharing my faith with my next door neighbor, wouldn't it be great right now if I could just say to my neighbor, hey, your car's kind of dirty. You know, it's been a long winter, right? I see the mud and everything splattered up on your car. Close your eyes twice, open them and look and behold, there it is gleaming and shiny in an instant. I wish I could say to my neighbor, look at my car. Close your eyes twice and there it is gleaming and shiny. Wouldn't that be great? Of course it would be. Would they believe in Jesus any more through that kind of a miracle? Would they believe in him any more through that kind of a miracle as opposed, and you might say over and against, the miracle of the resurrection? No. And that's exactly what the text shows us. Look at their response. It continues. Verse 11. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, Look what they do. They lifted up their voices. This is the same sort of expression we see elsewhere in the New Testament. When people begin to worship, they lift up their voices in praise and worship to God. These people are lifting up their voices in praise and worship, but notice who it is that they're starting to praise and worship. It says they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, you need to understand something about first century culture. This is a culture that is rooted in polytheism. You've got Roman mythology, and you've got Greek mythology. And there are different names for different gods, but there are essentially, there's a lot of overlap between the Roman mythology and the Greek mythology. Uh, For example, in Greek mythology, they'll call the chief god, uh, they'll call him Zeus. In Roman mythology, the chief god, the head god, they'll call him Jupiter. In in Roman mythology, uh, the Greek god Zeus, he has a son who serves as a messenger of the gods, and that son's name is Hermes. Well, in in Roman theology, he also has a god that, uh, that uh, Jupiter has a god that's his son that serves as a as a messenger for the gods, but they call his name Mercury, okay? So different names from Greek 
to Roman mythology, but essentially the same basic kind of structure here. And what's fascinating is that within Greek mythology, they believed that at different times you had to worship different gods. For example, if you're going on a sea voyage across the Mediterranean, you could encounter rough seas. It could be dangerous. Guess which god you need to worship in that moment as you're about to embark? Well, you need to worship, thank you, Poseidon. That's right. You need to worship the god of the ocean. Uh, I wasn't going to say his name, but okay, there you go. Somebody who is obviously classically trained and knows a thing or two about Greek mythology. So yeah, you'd worship the god of the ocean. If you're having a problem with your wife and you're wanting to resolve issues, you need to talk to the god of love. I'm not going to mention names again. You probably know who that god is and what types of words we have that come down to us from that particular uh, god. But the idea there is that you have no stability. Okay? At any given time, one of the things we learn about either Greek mythology or Roman mythology is that while there is a sort of hierarchy of gods, these gods are always kind of playing games with each other, and from time to time they'll be able to trick each other and they'll get the upper hand on each other. And caught in the melee of all of these gods fighting with each other are people. Somehow people get caught up in the crossfire. One of the stories that is told then and people in the first century would tell these stories in order to reinforce certain morals, in order to maximize the amount of blessing that you could have living in a society that is governed by gods that are constantly at odds with each other. One of the things that they would say to each other is that they needed to always be hospitable to their fellow man, which is a teaching that we find in the scriptures. And in fact, one of the stories they would tell is the story of Philemon, and bosses, which is a story of uh, some poor people living in a town who were really, really noble-hearted and were always hospitable, always opening their home up to others. And one day, Jupiter, or Zeus, and the sun, Mercury, or Hermes, uh, came to visit this couple, uh, disguised as men. And of course, the couple welcomed the men and very hospitable. And as the story goes, they had visited other people in the town. And of course, nobody else had welcomed them in or shown them any kind of hospitality. And so they'd come to Philemon and Boss's house. And of course, this couple had welcomed them in. And as a means of gratitude, they granted that they could have a wish done for them, whatever they wished. And of course, they made some kind of a wish to be priests to Zeus forever. And as a final sort of blessing, they took Philemon and Bossus up onto a hill overlooking the city, and they said, now watch while we destroy your whole village and all these people die. And of course, Philemon and Bossus are like, yeah, that's great. Like, let's kill those guys. You hear that story, do you feel like you want to entertain people? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, the morality is if I am not kind to my neighbor, my neighbor is going to pray for my ultimate extinction? Is that kind of the idea here? Or, or that I have to begrudgingly take care of my neighbor because my neighbor might be a god coming to me disguised, you know? I mean, you know, and if I play host to this particular person who shows up on my doorstep potentially disguised as a god, am I then maybe offending some other god? You see, it gets really confusing, really confusing within a polytheistic worldview. Uh, yeah, I, I want to be loving and I want to be kind, but I, I, there are all kinds of Machiavellian schemes here. There are all kinds of political considerations, and I'm not really sure 
who I need to show favor to at any time. The moral teaching is, yes, show hospitality. And what's interesting is we see this within the scriptures. It says even in the book of Hebrews, listen to this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some of you have entertained angels unawares. The scriptures point out the fact that yes, we are to entertain, we are to host and be hospitable, and we are to show love and care for our fellow man. And the scriptures even point out the fact that there are angels that have come down and visited humanity in human likeness, and that in hosting people, strangers, we may have been performing a service or a kindness to angels. The difference, though, is this. There is no question when it comes to the God of the Bible versus the many gods of Greek mythology, the polytheism of Greek mythology, there is no question about who deserves your worship at all times. Paul and Barnabas, they work this miracle. They heal this guy. They're preaching the gospel. The crowd ignores the message and begins to respond to the miracle out of their pre-existing worldview, which is a worldview of polytheism. That's exactly what they do. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Verse 13, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands, These are like wreaths, and they were used in traditional uh, sacrifice when it came to worshiping the various gods of either Greek or Roman mythology. He brings oxen and garlands to the gates, and uh, he wants to offer sacrifice, it says, together with the crowds. The whole group of them wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. Now, Notice the response, verse 14. When Barnabas, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, which is an unmistakable expression of grief and sorrow. They tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. Now, in this moment, what I want you to understand, what's going on here, is that they are not leaving a good miracle unattended. A miracle has been performed. God performed it, which means that the miracle is not sinful. It's not wrong to have miracles, but the miracle on its own is insufficient. It is not enough to compel faith apart from the preaching of the gospel. One of the things my mom taught me as I was beginning, as I was making preparations to move out of my house, to move out on my own, is, son, you're going to start cooking for yourself, which I kind of laughed at and was like, yeah, right, I'm actually going to spend all my money on fast food is most likely what's going to happen. But she tried to encourage me, son, you're moving out, so there's a couple things you didn't know. I need to show you a few things about cooking. She tried her best. I don't really remember much of any of it. I was hopeful that I would seal the deal in due time with the lady I was dating at the time, Shanti. God was good to me, and that was actually able to happen. And so I I never really had to worry too much about cooking. But one of the things my mom impressed upon me, when you've got something in the stove, when it's 
something in the skillet, frying, never leave a pot or a pan unattended. Never do that. And that's more or less what we see here. They've performed a miracle, but they're not going to leave that thing cooking. They're not going to leave it unattended. Church, take this truth home with you. There are miracles all the time that God performs to bear witness to his glory. Take them, use them, never leave them unattended. Preach the gospel. And that's exactly what they do. Notice their response. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? First off, we deny your worship. We reject the fact that you guys are trying to slaughter cows and garlands and all of this sort of business as an act of worship for us. We reject all of that. He says, we are men of like nature, just like you, okay? We're the same as you. You're a man, we're men. We're not gods disguised as men. We're not somehow these polytheistic creatures you have in your mind that have come down from heaven to be among you. We're certainly not trying to trick you into being hospitable to us or else we're going to wipe your whole city off the map. That is not the message that is being preached here. He says, we are the same as you, like nature with you. Now, here's the deal. He's going to explain the miracle. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain Things. The first thing he says is vain things. Greek word here, matasaios, it's pertaining to that which is completely useless. It has no value. He's telling them that their theology of polytheism is fruitless, it is meaningless, it has no value. In other words, what you're doing right now in worshiping us as you're approaching us as though we are gods, we're telling you that is absolute garbage. It has no value, there's no point in it, it is futile, it is useless. And then the second thing he says, he says, turn from those things. We have come to bring you good news that what you are worshiping is useless, and we bring you the exhortation that you need to turn. And here's the deal. If you are here today, and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, as Paul and Barnabas said to these guys 2,000 years ago, so we here at First Baptist Church say to you today, if you are not worshiping Christ, if there is any other God in your life that you are worshiping, it is futile, it is useless, it will profit you nothing, and you need to turn and turn today. Probably the best illustration I've ever heard regarding turning. I believe, I want to say it was R.C. Sproul. I can't be exactly sure at this point in time where I heard this from. I'm pretty sure it was Ligonier. The illustration goes like this. When we hear the word turn, to turn from whatever it is that we're worshiping, to turn to Jesus, we think in our minds that that's an easy thing to do. It's as though we're just walking down the street and, hey, turn, just stop, turn, and walk the other direction, right? But now I want you to imagine that for a second if you're riding your bicycle. To stop your bicycle, to turn and go the other direction, takes a little bit more effort and so forth and so on. It, it builds, it increases. Imagine driving in a vehicle. You have to hit the brakes to bring the vehicle to a stop. You have to perform a three-point turn. You have to accelerate in the opposite direction. Imagine piloting a super tanker filled with oil on the ocean. From the moment you hit stop, it could take you two miles to come to a stop, and then to turn the ship around and get going the other direction. What you need to understand is that repentance 
is not simply stopping. Turning is not simply stopping. It's accelerating to maximum speed in the opposite direction. And we hear the call to turn, and we think, I can turn at any time. We think, you know what, as my life progresses, if I see the end approaching, I can turn, even then, on my deathbed, and turn back to Christ. And I want to relieve you of that deception right now. The longer we go, the more momentum we build, the more difficult it is to stop. Which is to say, if you hear this message today, that Jesus Christ loves you and that he died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, and you hear the call to turn, today is the day you start turning. We don't know how long you have and we don't know how long it will take you to turn. This is what he's saying to them. Men, turn from living, from vain, futile things to a living God. He rejects all of their polytheism. He rejects it entirely. There is one God. He created the heavens and the earth. You hear that and immediately you begin to raise some objections. Okay, you're saying that contrary to our belief that there are multiple gods, you're telling me that there is one God. Well, here's a question. Where has he been for the last several thousand years? The history of humanity. I have not heard of this guy. Where has he been? Why is he just now showing up? And Paul addresses that. He says, he made the heaven, he made the earth and the sea and all that is in it. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet, though absent, though he was not immediately present to you, do not for one second think that he did not leave himself a witness in your life. He says very clearly, he did not leave himself without a witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Notice this, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. When we stop to reflect on whether or not there is a God, and especially if there are any here today who are not sure whether or not there is a God, who are not sure whether or not they're trusting in the fact that God is real or that he exists, ask yourself this question, why are you? in the sense that why do you exist when just as easily you could not exist? The fact that you live, the fact that you've known happiness, the fact that you've had a good meal once upon a time and had a good laugh with a few friends, all of this bears witness to the fact that there's a God in heaven who created you, who created friends for you to enjoy their company and blessed you, the text says, satisfying you. Now, we've all known discontentment, We've all known sad days. That should be the norm if there is no God. The fact that we have known from time to time happiness and satisfaction bears unmistakable witness to the fact that there is indeed a God who cares for us. And Paul is saying to them, you have no objections, you have no criticisms that you can level against this one true God He has cared for you even when you didn't know anything about him. And that is the reality. They preach the good news. In verse 18, Luke makes this parenthetical comment. Even with these words, they scarcely were able to restrain them. And this is the linchpin of the text. Greek word there is molis. Scarcely is probably the absolute best translation. What this word means is that in some instances, 
with great difficulty and great effort, they were able, in some instances, to stop people from worshiping them. What the word also means is that despite great difficulty, despite the great effort that they put into it, they were not able to stop some of the people from worshiping them. Now, all the way through, understand. I mean, if you look back at chapter 14, verse 7, they come to Lycaonia, and verse 7 says there, they continued to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They heal this first fellow who's been crippled from birth. They're preaching the gospel. It says that when Paul saw that he had faith to be made well, he healed them. This is unmistakably the gospel being preached first, followed by a miracle, followed by confusion, followed by more gospel preaching, and despite all of that, people still worshipped Paul and Barnabas. If you're thinking that it would be really, really, really great if in our evangelism we could just work a miracle and people would believe, you are sorely mistaken. Miracles can be more confusing than they are clarifying because man in his sinfulness has a tendency to interpret that miracle through whatever his pre-existing worldview happens to be. You work a miracle. You make it clear before, during, and after. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. They see it and they say, wow, that's great. You're Zeus and Hermes. Understand, church, the gospel reigns supreme. The preaching of the word of God takes priority and precedence over any other miracle we could ever perform. And there is no miracle greater than the resurrection. Every act of healing, every act of mercy that comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is granted by God to show that in the cross, Christ has borne our griefs and taken our sorrows because it is through the affliction that he bore on our behalf that we are able to be healed. We got to talk about Jesus before we can start talking about healing. We have to present the cross and the suffering that was performed on our behalf by Christ before we can start talking about the healing that comes to us after the resurrection. Church, don't get that mixed up in your mind. You say, Pastor Josh, how do you know with absolute certainty that these miracles are granted by God in order to show that the apostles are telling the truth? Well, that comes from Hebrews. And I just want you to understand, though I'm telling you today that the gospel takes priority over the working of miracles, we still need to remember the fact that God in heaven knew that these guys would be confused by the miracle. Nevertheless, 
he granted the miracle to be performed. The miracle is not bad. It's just not enough. Hebrews chapter 2. The author of the book of Hebrews makes this statement. And he emphasizes the priority of the gospel over miracles. And he says it so beautifully. Listen to this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's saying, we had the law, and we saw what the law did, and now we've got something greater than the law. We've got salvation, we've got grace, we've got Christ. He says we shouldn't neglect that. He goes on in verse 2. Beg your pardon, verse 3. He says, it was declared at first by the Lord. This is the gospel of salvation. It was proclaimed by the Lord. And then it was attested to us by those who heard, heard him. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. God puts his stamp of approval on the gospel through the working of miracles. But understand, it is the preaching of the gospel which takes priority over the miracles. You say, it'd be really great, Pastor Josh, if I could just blink my eyes twice and my car would be magically washed after all of the winter snow and mud, and then all my, miracle, all my neighbors would believe, they'd see the miracle and they'd believe in Jesus. I can't give you a magician's parlor trick. Jesus doesn't give you a magician's parlor trick. He gives you something better. In Hebrews chapter 2, It says that God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. He's bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. And listen to how that verse ends. He bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Wow last several weeks, we've been doing a spiritual gifts workshop here at First Baptist Church. Many of you have been attending. We've been talking about what your spiritual gift is. We've been talking about the importance of you understanding exactly how God has blessed you and supernaturally empowered you for acts of ministry and service to the body. Many of you have said, I want to know what my gift is. I want to know what, what it is that the Lord has given me, and I want to I start using it. One of the things that you may have overlooked is that in the using of your gift to bless your brothers and sisters in this church, you're not only blessing them, you're not only being blessed by them, but a miracle is happening here at First Baptist that bears witness to the truth of the cross that is unmistakable when it is seen by the world. Isn't that wonderful? When we think about it, we have here wonderful, dear saints who have walked many years with the Lord, who are now in the twilight years of their life, who are looking at maybe within the next decade or less the reality that they will be going home to be with the Lord. 
and there is no trouble in their heart. There is no doubt in their mind. They know in whom they have trusted, and they are convinced after many, many years that he is able to safeguard that which they have entrusted to him. We see that. We see the friendship that takes place in this church. If you stop to think about it, this is a pretty diverse mix of people. We've got doctors in the room who make over $100,000 a year. We have folks who are in fixed incomes, who are, scra- who are scratching out a living, living on like $1,000 a month, whatever their check from the government is. I mean, we've got people on both sides of the socioeconomic spectrum, but not just that. We've got people from Africa. We've got people from India. We've got straight white people right here from Canada, from Kamloops. And most important of all, we've got people from Texas in here, right? <laughs> I mean, we've got the whole gamut. We've got everything right here. What brings this group of people together? In all seriousness, all joking aside, I appreciate you're laughing at my silly humor, but in all seriousness, what brings this group of people together? From both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, from many, many different races and nationalities all around the world, from different states from the Americas, what gathers us all together here in this room? We're looking out at a world that says something is broken. Let's try this to fix it. These people are at odds with each other. Let's try this to fix it. Let's pass this law, this legislation. Let's enact this education program. Let's do all of these different things in our public schools. There's got to be some way that we can remove bullying, remove the stigma of all of our various differences they try and they try and they try look in the church all of that is healed not through all those government programs not through all those different attempts at education not through any of it it is healed by jesus christ and the cross look at yourselves and see the miracle that you are church you're a miracle and only christ could put you together tell that to the world but don't tell it to the world before you share the gospel with them. Here's what I really want you to understand today. Our tendency in our evangelism is to go to our friends and our neighbors and say, hey, I'd really like for you to give Jesus some consideration. Say, okay, come, to, come with me to church on Sunday. Now, is that wrong? No, not at all. Not at all. Invite your neighbor to church. Let them come and see the miracle. Let them understand the joy and the family and the friendship that we have in this room. Let them perceive that Christ has made us together one in him. Let them see that. I am in no means discouraging that. I am in no way saying that is wrong. This is the miracle, and Christ has worked that miracle in our midst. Amen, praise God, hallelujah, and glory to the Father above. But look at what we know to be true from the book of Acts. The miracle observed is not sufficient in and of itself to bring salvation. The miracle observed is not enough It is not enough to open a person's eyes to their need for forgiveness with Christ. Too often we say, all I got to do is invite my neighbor or my family member or whoever it is to church. They'll come, they'll see great things, there'll be a gospel message, or there might not be, as Pastor Josh works his way through the book of Acts. You're putting all of this freight 
on their attendance here, and I'm here to tell you, your responsibility does not change though you invite them to see the miracle. Your responsibility is to preach the gospel to your neighbors. They need to understand before they come to see the miracle what it is that has wrought this miracle. They need to understand when they come in here and they hear the testimonies and they hear the preaching of the word of God, they listen to someone stand up and read the scriptures and people are standing out of reverence and respect. They need to understand that our salvation comes because we have placed our hope in what God has said to us. It is precious. They're not going to necessarily get that just by watching it. And then when the sermon is preached, And people are walking out the door saying, thank you, pastor, great message that changed my life, altered my perspective. I I see things that need to change in my life now. They're going to hear that, and still they will not get it. They may yet conclude, having seen all of that, that at the end of the day, that guy is just a really eloquent speaker. He's capable of telling an interesting joke from time to time, and he is able to hold their attention. And these guys are a bunch of brainwashed zombies, just like any other cult, And they're just blithely marching along to the Pied Piper's tune. You see, at the end of the day, you invite them here. You want me to preach the gospel to them. I am happy to oblige. But do you worship me? No, by no means. You've invited them to see a messenger. And what they really need to hear from you is the gospel the message that has changed your life. We have in many ways become just like these people. We're not worshiping a polytheistic God, but we're outsourcing all of that which Christ has called us to, to coming and observing the miracle rather than preaching the gospel. It starts again, and I'll just review it with you quickly. Verse 7, they continued preaching the gospel. Verse 8, there's a man sitting crippled. He listened to Paul speaking. And when Paul saw that he had faith to be made well, he healed him. The crowd responds, and Paul responds to the crowd. Why are you doing these things? We are men just like you. And he had confronts their erroneous ideas regarding polytheism. He says there's one true God. Paul takes responsibility, doesn't let it all ride on the miracle. There's nothing wrong with showing the world the miracle that is First Baptist Church. But if that's all you're going to do, then you're leaving the miracle unattended in the same way that you're leaving a frying pan on the stove unattended and you're shirking the responsibility that God has called you to. There's a castle. There's a castle in Carlisle. It's in the English county of Cumbria. Cambria. Sorry, notes are typo there. It's near the ruins of Hadrian's Walls. It's, it's close to the border between England and, and Scotland. And as a result, it's been the center of all kinds of skirmishes and battles over the last millennia as England and Scotland have fought back and forth with each other. If you go to this castle, they've got these dungeons that are built into the top wall. And in these dungeons, there are windows, very narrow slits with a bar right down the middle. You can't get out, of course. If you look at the windowsill, you can see where after hundreds of years of prisoners being in those cells, 
they have pulled at the rocks around the windowsill. You can see where it's rough and then where those fingers have rested year after year, century after century on that windowsill. The oil from the skin and the efforts, the clawing, the constant clawing, it has worn that windowsill smooth. Undoubtedly, they're looking out and they can see in the distance their homeland. They can see Scotland. And the prisoners who have been trapped there, they want to get out and they want to go home. And this is the miracle that the world needs to see. When we have trusted in Jesus Christ, it is Jesus living in us who wants to get out to tell the world about what he has done for them. Are you letting Jesus free in your life? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Or are you hoping the miracle will be enough? Let's pray, First Baptist Church. Lord in heaven, we say thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, for the joy that it is to be a part of this family. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And thank you for making us one in Christ. Above all these things, we say thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us the hope of resurrection, eternal life, another life to be lived on this earth in the flesh because of what you have done on the cross. Father, we rejoice in that. It is that truth that gathers us together here as brothers and sisters. Though we come from radically different backgrounds, you, Lord, bring us together and make us one. We say thank you. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that to this very day, the world has utterly failed to reproduce. But you make it happen every Sunday. It is visible. We say thank you for that. Lord, you made that happen not by focusing our cause, our eyes on some other cause or some other issue or turning us to some particular program of education. Lord, you did it by focusing our eyes on your son. And our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would convict our hearts of our responsibility to proclaim that good news, that Jesus is Lord. We are made into the miracle because of you. Father, drive home into our hearts today this truth. The miracles are wonderful, but the simple message of the cross is even better. We pray you do that by the blood of Christ and the Spirit's power. We pray, amen.